Shabbat Shalom. Well, today we're going to look at the mystery of the Malkit Zedek, part six. So it's our ongoing journey in the Malkit Zedek. I'm really, really blessed to be able to spend this time in the Word and re-examining this. And we've had so many, so many positive comments and um, people looking into this from all over the world. It truly, truly is encouraging. But what I want to touch on today is really the, the effects and the, the effects of sin and the effects of sin that happened at the golden calf is not limited to back then in Bible history, but really very much with us today. And we're seeing that more and more in this crazy Looney Tunes world that we live in. And it seems that nobody has the eyes to see, and nobody has the stomach for sure to do what needs to be done. Nobody has the stomach for sure that needs to, to do what needs to be done. Back in the beginning of the 20th century, the British in Jerusalem, when there was um, Muslims that would go and um, fight against the British, you know what they would do? And it was very effective, is they put out a news warning and they would bury those that died in pigskin. And of course, that reduced those terrorists to zero because then in their faith they wouldn't go into heaven. But nobody's got the stomach to do those types of things today. The British would spill pig's blood over the bodies of those that committed atrocious crimes. But nobody's got the stomach to do what we're doing today, what we need to do today because nobody wants to admit that this is a religious war that this is simply going back to two different seeds from two diametrically opposed families, the families of Yahweh and the family of Satan. It is really the war against the seed of Isaac and the seed of Ishmael. And this was brought forth, and the effects of this sin are with us today. The effects of idolatry and bowing down to false gods it's devastating, and you're seeing the effects of that in Europe. It comes from idolatry. It's simply choosing a false God to serve instead of the one true living Elohim. And like I say, it's, it's not limited to way back there in Bible history, but it's right here in the 21st century. And we've all experienced its effects. All of us have effects that go back to the golden calf. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Because we've been left, all of us, in our families, in our cities, in our communities, and now in whole continents, in the nations, we're all left with the consequences of sin, the consequences of idolatry, going out and worshipping false Elohim that now affects nations. But there is hope. There is hope. There is hope and there is deliverance only through the Malkit Zedek, the resurrected Yeshua HaMashiach, and being in the priesthood. It's a call to the priesthood to follow the Master, to follow the Savior, because truly, now more than any time in the history of mankind, that means it needs to be a clarion call to the priesthood to follow the true Savior. Not the gods of man, 
that are propped up at Christmas time, that are propped up at other times of years and come out on the Hallmark cards, but the one true living Elohim. There needs to be truth more than any other time in the history of mankind today because we live in a world of sickness and compromise where leaders aren't willing to stand up and say what needs to be said for fear of being politically incorrect. They, nobody's got the stomach to call Islamic terrorism Islamic terrorism that it is truly from the religion that is in the Quran, that these are the true believers. Nobody has the stomach to say this. And I've seen it all week with politicians skirting the fact of what has been going on in the world is none other than a religious war. It truly is. It truly is. We had last week, Europe had the, um, its first female suicide bomber last week. And the world, I believe, is going to begin experiencing what many American servicemen have been experiencing since 2001. The world is going to start experiencing what they have been experiencing since 2001. And that's the effects of improvised explosive devices that will be brought to cities across the world. And we saw that in Paris last week. Do you realize that since 2001, more than 16,000, more than 16,000 Americans have had severe disabling wounds from Islamic bomb makers? 16,000 that are, live amongst us that live amongst us and are not given the medical treatment that they should have from the veterans. They're left, many of them, ill-equipped and able to reintegrate into life. And the suicide rate amongst U.S. servicemen that is returning from war is just a tragedy, a tragedy. We've had upward of 253,000 servicemen that have suffered from traumatic brain injury on the battlefield, including 3,949 with penetrating head wounds and 44,610 with severe or moderate brain injury from blasts. These are astounding numbers that have never, ever occurred in warfare in the history of the world. Never. Never. In the army alone, 73,674 soldiers have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as a result from the combat experience and experiences that they're having in these Islamic nations. The army itself has diagnosed over 30,000 soldiers who've returned from combat with traumatic brain injury caused by severe blows to the head and given them a concussive state. Among the combat wounded from all military service, services, 1,572 patients have had major limb amputations. Major limb amputations, over 1,500 including 486 wounded troops with multiple 
multiple amputations from these Islamic bomb makers. What American servicemen have been experiencing, the world is going to be experiencing in cities. And people need to wake up to this reality, and nobody seems to have the stomach to call it for what it is. These numbers don't even include those who've suffered the loss of fingers and toes. They're not even included in these numbers. And the this data is several years old because they don't want this data out there. Most of the amputees, 83%, have lost one or both legs, mostly from the blast of improvised explosive devices. 1,410 have had their nuts blown off. 1,410. You know what I think? I think they should get Caitlyn Jenner and Barack Obama to volunteer for the next mind-sweeping task. Because Caitlyn Jenner, she doesn't need her nuts, and I don't think Barack ever had any to begin with. I mean, can you say that? But seriously... What kind of world are we living in? But all that to say this, we are living with the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. And it all began with this war between the seeds. And that bad seed had even infiltrated amongst the mixed multitude of Israel when they left Egypt. And when they were at the golden calf, what happened at the golden calf was that an explosive device went off in Israel, if you will. And Israel was left decimated. But where do these wars come from anyway? James tells us in the fourth chapter, where do wars and violence come from among you? Do they not come from your own desires for pleasure, that war in your very members? You lust and do not have. You murder, you covet, and you do not obtain. You fight and wage war. And he goes on to conclude that friendship with the world, friendship with the new world order, friendship with that system makes you an enemy. You are an enemy against Yahweh if you believe what these politicians are spinning you. You are making yourself an enemy against Yahweh. We have to really get back to biblical basics and get back into the priesthood instead of into this political system that is not for you and I, and it stands for absolute evil and tyranny and enslavement. Absolute tyranny. You see, humanity is fighting against Yahweh. And mankind's religions are all suffering from the devastating effects from the golden calf, which is what? Idolatry. It's idolatry. Allah was just one of the daily deities that was picked out of the cabal, which was the pre-Islamic moon god Sin. And you know when they went to Jericho? That means moon city. And remember when Gideon 
came and the camel traders came and they had the crescent ornaments around their neck. You see, because Allah is really the pre-Islamic moon god, Sin. You see, and we don't know this, but it was regurgitated in the 6th century and has now been spread across the globe. But it goes back to the same thing that was going on at the golden calf. Idolatry. Idolatry. And when you see the Christmas trees coming out with the cross in the middle, that is nothing more than idolatry. Christianized. And that is the problem with the world that we live in today. That nobody's got the stomach to do the hard things that you have to do. Because it's not easy, this faith that we live, is it? It's not easy against going against the grain, going against the culture. It's not easy having to turn the radio off for the whole of December because you don't want to listen to the things that they're saying. Well, that actually is quite easy. But, you know, for some it's not. (laughs) But the golden calf affects everyone. And the only answer, I believe, is the Malkitzedic covenants of promise, the covenants of hope for this generation. And to use that metaphor, a bomb did go off. A bomb did go off at the golden calf. And Israel got their nuts blown off. And guess what Yahweh did? He gave them seat seat because of it. And you think I'm joking. He did. Why? Because they were a whoring and they couldn't keep the commandments. So he literally had to give them straps of cloth over their groin area so that they would remember the commandments and not go whoring like they had done at the golden calf. Because it says at the golden calf that they rose up to play. That phrase is the same phrase that was used when they went into Baal Peor. It is whoremongering and they were doing sexual acts. And that is really, truly why we see that, yes, Israel, metaphorically, a bomb did go off at the golden calf and they got their nuts blown off. And Sitsi are the sign to not go whoring again. All that to say this, we need to look at what happened there. Because it says in Galatians 3.19, I'm going to actually be able to tie this in with getting your nuts blown off. And you're all wondering how I can do that and how many times am I going to say that? As many as I can because I have license to today. Galatians 3.19, wherefore then serveth the law? It was added, and this is how I can tie it back in. The Greek word added here is prosthame, prosthame, where we get the English word prosthesis, prosthetic. This is fascinating. Wherefore then serveth the book of the law? Already identified nine verses earlier. Galatians 3.10. Wherefore then serveth the book of the law? The book of the law is a prosthesis. It's something that's added because you had something blown off. 
It was added because of the transgressions at the golden calf. Till the seed should come whom the promise was made. The Levitical law is a prosthesis. It is a prosthesis, an added man-made appendage that can never stand in place of a fully functioning body of believers. I don't care what you tell those soldiers. I don't care how much tech you've got with your new world order. That prosthetic, no matter how good it is, you're never going to convince that soldier that that prosthetic limb is as good as the original limb that was blown off. And if you think that you've come to salvation in Yeshua so that you can hobble along in the book of the law, which is a prosthesis, then you are underestimating the resurrection of the Messiah and you are keyed into the bloody religions of men in the Levitical hierarchy. If that's what you want to do, hobble along on a prosthesis, then guess what? Islam will kick it out and cut your off. And you think I'm joking, but seriously, it's time to get rid of the prosthesis, get into the priesthood, and be a radical for Yahweh, radically on fire, radically charged up in righteousness. Stop the pagan nonsense that the world is doing and dressing it up like Jesus, because that is, Christians haven't got the stomach for what is going to happen. And they haven't got the stomach to go to war against Islam because the reality is that is what we have to do. Yes, our war is not against flesh and blood, but principalities. But that doesn't mean that you're supposed to be some nimby-wimby pacifist that takes it lying down. You've got to rise up in righteousness, spread the word of Yahweh like a fire, like a sword, and you need to stand where you stand. And let it fall where it falls. Because those that compromise, those that can't stomach it, they're just going to get their heads cut off after they go crying to Allah. Or do you want to stand for Yahweh and stand? Because it's serious. Because our southern border is widely open and exposed and the nut job of a president is still fighting over 30 governors to bring in more Syrians because they haven't got the stomach to call it what it is. We are living in a crazy, like you said, Looney Tunes world. And you're like, how can these people do this stuff? How can these people do this stuff? Galatians 3.19 prosthesis. The book of the law is a prosthesis that was added because the bomb of the golden calf exploded and decimated Israel. So Yahweh gave them a man-made appendage to help them hobble along. Then he gave them the prophets so that the prophets would tell them that when they went outside and continued to whore, the prophets would call them back and say, return and put back on the appendage because at least you can function and wait until the master physician comes that will regrow you a new limb. But people don't want the effects of the master physician. They still want the appendage. I don't understand it. 
It's religion. It's religion pure and simple, and it lines the pockets of men. That's what it does. They've got ministries that are built upon it, and this undermines that because it allows Yahweh's people to rise up and take control of their lives and their faith in a dynamic, dynamic, explosive direction that has never happened for over 2,000 years. Freedom from the idolatry and hands of men. That's what we need. That's what we need. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12 says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity, a change also to the law. There's been a change to the Torah. It's not a change to lawlessness like the traditional religion of the West would have you believe. No. May it never be so, as the Apostle Paul says. It's not a change to no law and lawlessness, but it is a change to what? Covenant Torah. Covenant priesthood. It's not a change to no priesthood. It's not a change to the Catholic priesthood. It's a change to covenant Malkitzedic priesthood and a change to covenant Torah. For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity, a change also of the law. And this change, the Greek word here, is mathesis, and it's a reversion back to the original, a reversion back to the original Malkitzedic priesthood. And that's extremely important that we understand that. We are going back to perfection instead of going forward and limping along with what men would have us try to limp along. It's not sufficient for us and the faith today. I want to talk about, because this often hangs people up, is Moshe's ascents up Mount Sinai. You see, some people will just read through the Scriptures and you'll read it really fast and you don't realize that Moshe Rabbeinu ascended Mount Sinai not once, not twice, not seven times, not eight times, not even... He was up there ten times. So you can't run it all together in this Greek linear thinking and try and understand the Malkitzedic covenants. You'll be forever confused and bumbling along on a prosthetic limb. So let's look at these ascents of Mount Sinai because it's very important in the understanding and unraveling of the covenant. Because oftentimes, and again, this is our Western thought that we have to overcome, oftentimes people run this linear chronology. And we've all been guilty of it. I mean, come on, when we started out in the faith, we'd go to church and you have the cross And everything before the cross, you know, that's Old Testament. Then you have this revelation of the cross, and then you've got everything after the cross. It's this linear timeline. That's how we think in the West, but this is not the Hebraic way of thinking. Hebraic is cyclical. It goes from Shabbat to Shabbat, new moon to new moon, feast to feast to feast to feast. It's a cyclical, cyclical lifestyle, like a wheel, like Ezekiel had the visions of a wheel within a wheel within a wheel. So we have to overcome this linear chronology when we read the Bible. 
Because if we think in this lineal timeline, then we're going to fail to distinguish Moses' different ascents up Mount Sinai. And this is going to block the grasping of these covenants of promise. And I know so many people truly have a heart to understand, but we have to be able to tear down this Greek linear thinking to be able to really grasp what the Hebrew Scriptures have for us. Let's look at Moshe Rabbeinu's first time up the mountain. If you've got a pen or a pencil, just mark it in your Scriptures because I tell you, when you start to read your Scriptures with the understanding of his difference of sense up the mountain, it will really enlighten you and is a study unto itself. It's a study of enlightenment unto itself. Exodus chapter 3, Shemot chapter 3, Moses' first ascent up Mount Sinai, we see the Elohim of Zedek. He calls Moshe Rabbeinu into the priesthood. He calls Moshe Rabbeinu into the Zedek priesthood in Exodus chapter 3. The second time Moshe goes up the mountain is in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 3. And Yahweh goes to tell the house of Zedek, the house of Jacob. We see this in Exodus 19.3. The third ascent is Moshe brings back words of the people, and this is in Exodus 19, verse 8. And the fourth ascent up the mountain is Moshe warns the people there's covenant boundaries. Exodus 19, verse 20. Go and warn the people of the covenant boundaries. Exodus 19, 20, Moshe Rabbeinu's fourth ascent up the mountain. The fifth ascent up the mountain, I want you to really mark this because this is very important. This is key to the Malkitzedek covenants of promise. Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, extending through chapter 23, verse 33, includes the blood ratification of the book of the covenant. This is the fifth ascent up the mountain, and it includes the blood ratification of the book of the covenant. So nothing can be added. So you can't add what happens on ascent number six. You can't add what happens on ascent number 7, 8, 9, or 10. Because what happens on the fifth ascent happens when there's blood ratification of the covenant. So don't come to me and start trying to penny wheel in what happened the seventh time he went up and ram it into the covenant. Because it's not going to work. I'm not going to fall for that Levitical hierarchy. Because I understand that he didn't just run up and down the mountain twice. That many, many Christian commentators seem to think he did. And you run it all together and you hoodwink people into your false priesthood. And you circumnavigate the blood of Yeshua while upholding your genealogy. It's outrageous. It's bloody outrageous. Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, through chapter 23, verse 33. The fifth ascent, Moses goes up Mount Sinai, includes the blood ratification of the book of the covenant, meaning 
Nothing can be added to the covenant. None of the ascents from 6 to 10 can be added to the covenant. You can't lump these ascents and string them together in Greek chronology. It just simply won't work. Now we go on and we see number 6, the 6th ascent. Exodus chapter 24 verse 9, there is the book of the covenant confirming meal. It was already blood ratified. This is a covenant confirming meal. And this, of course, we see in the sixth ascent. The seventh ascent is Exodus 24 verse 12. Now, the first set of tablets and imposed, meaning can't be added law of commandments, along with the tabernacle instructions are given. So the law that is added in Exodus 24.12 cannot be part of the blood-ratified covenant. It's very simple, but it's very hard for people to understand it when you run it all together. And talking to literally, I don't know how many people over the years, this is the big stumbling block is running everything together because you know what? We are a fast society. We want it instant, don't we? We want it in. Give it, give it to me. Give me the Malkit said in eight verses or less, Matthew. Really? We've had letters like that. Ten verses or less. <laughs> Go and get your own oil from the vicar if you want to get your oil from the vicar of Christ. But the oil that I have, that the Malkitzedic priesthood has, it takes time to crush it. And it's painful. And you've got to pick out your flesh. Because the flesh will get in the wick of the lamp and it will diminish your light. And it doesn't happen in ten verses or less. It doesn't happen in a summer of study. It takes time, and people don't have the time to invest in Yahweh. And that's the problem. That's the problem. The seventh ascent, Exodus 24, verse 12. We see the first set of tablets and the imposed, meaning it cannot be added, law of commandments, along with the tabernacle instructions. Now... The eighth ascent of Mount Sinai by Moses was Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, after the sin of the golden calf. The ninth ascent is Exodus chapter 32, verse 31. Moshe, the last holy Melchizedek, what does he do? He intercedes for the people. He intercedes for the people. He pleads with Yahweh. And then Moses' final ascent, his 10th ascent of Mount Sinai is Exodus chapter 34, the second set of tablets, which are placed where? Inside the Ark of the what? Covenant. And the book of the law is placed where? Outside the Ark, in a pocket, as a what? as a witness against Israel for breaking the book of the covenant, which was housed inside the Ark of the Covenant. It all starts to make sense. It's not called the Ark of the Law. 
It's called the Ark of the Covenant because it housed the tablets of the covenant. And the book of the law was in a pocket outside Deuteronomy 31 as a witness against them. It was the prosthesis, the witness that they got there blown off. Deuteronomy 31 verse 26. Take this book of the law and put it at the side of the ark of the testimony of Yahweh your Elohim, that it may be there as a witness against you. And again, unraveling these ten ascents really starts to help permeate in the whole of the scriptures into your Malkitetic walk. But again, there's some more Greek stumbling blocks to us in this understanding of the Malkitetic book of the covenant. And that is that the Torah is not chronological. It's not chronological, and this is huge. And I, I mean, I've been, this is, would be my, what, 10th or 11th year of teaching the Torah and um, going through the Torah cycles. And if you just spend time going through the t- cycles, you're like, of course it's not chronological. It's called achronological, meaning this. When you read the Torah, the narrative is chronological. There was Abraham. Then, chronologically, there was who? Isaac. Then, chronologically, there was Jacob. Chronological. The narrative is chronological, but the mitzvot, the commandments, are not. They're achronological. You have to distinguish between narrative and and commandments, narrative and mitzvot. And Hebrews 7.11 testifies to this truth, stating that the book of the law was given under the Levitical priesthood, which was determined by when? The golden calf breach. The church taught that the Torah progresses according to the chronological order in which the events of the five books of Moses took place. Whereas what we find in a yearly Torah study, it becomes apparent that the Torah is achronological. This interpretation then allows for what? Thematic considerations in the Torah to place certain parashiot, the parshas, together. Certain parshas are placed together even though each parsha may have been given at a different time. Even though... The parshas may have been given at a different time. They're placed together. So when I would prepare each and every week for over a decade, I would have to differentiate in the Torah reading the difference between narrative and mitzvot. Because otherwise, you're just going to steam charge it all together and run it together, and you're no different than somebody in the church trying to do an Old Testament Bible study. And you know what good that did for us, right? We've got to slow it down. We have to slow it down and not think Greek linear. To me, it was always logical to assume that the ongoing narrative in the Torah was chronological. The history of Isaac obviously would follow the history of his father Abraham. I mean, that, that makes just, that's pretty common sense, right? And there might be instances within that 
when a certain narrative concludes with details that took place many years later. Let me give you an example. If you were to look at the story of the manna, and it was in the Parsha Beishalak, it concludes with Yahweh's commandment to Moshe to place a sample of the manna next to Aaron in the Ark of the Testimony. Go to Exodus chapter 16, verse 33. Because people will go, oh, no, no, the Torah is chronological. Go to Exodus chapter 16, verse 33. And we see, this is in, with, contained within Torah portion Beishalak. Moses is told to go and put what? A sample of the manna next to what? The Ahron, the Aaron, in the ark of the testimony. Do you see that? Exodus chapter 16, verse 33. Okay, but think about it. This commandment could have only been given when? After the ark of the testimony was built. Well, when was the ark of the testimony built? Not until chapter 25. (laughs) But we just read right on through it and we don't even catch it. You see, it's a commandment. Therefore, it is not chronological. It's achronological. But the commandment is put back in that partial because it's thematic. It's talking about something thematically, but it's not chronological because the ark wasn't even made until Exodus chapter 25. You see? That's just one case. How can Torah be chronological? Exodus 13, 16 verse 33 and Exodus 25. We've got a problem if you're going to have that Greek mindset. The commandment could only have been given after the Ark of the Testimony was completed, and that was an event that doesn't occur until many months and chapters later, chapter 25. But because the narrative deals with the manna, which first fell before the giving of the Torah, right? The narrative is talking about the manna, so therefore it includes the commandment that is associated with it because it's thematic even though it's not chronological. And now you're hating the fact that you went to the public education centers, right? Because you really have to think about it, because they don't want you to think about this. Just run it all out, right? And the next thing you know, you're sitting down at Thanksgiving and you're thinking, oh... The pilgrims, weren't they lovely people? Well, we dealt with that last week. So we can see right there. How, here's another example. The story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis. It's another classic example of achronology. Did I really say that? <laughs> I did. Excuse me. What we can see, though, is Tamar waited for what? For Shelah to grow up. But the second part of the story must have taken at least 13, taken place at least 13 years later. At least 13 years later. And hence it would have been after Joseph had become viceroy in Egypt. Recall, how old was Joseph when he was sold into slavery? 17. 
And he sold Pharaoh's dreams when he was how old? 30. So the story of Judah and Tamar, it cannot be in a chronological format. It simply can't. What about the mitzvot, these commandments that we see in the Torah? In what order are they presented? Do they follow the chronological order by which they were first given? No, because the mitzvot are embedded within the narrative and are not presented in an unbroken unit. The answer is popularly known, and this is in the Hebrew, they call it Ein Muchtam Um Uqbar Batorah, meaning there is no chronological order in the Torah. And that's from the sages. But they don't teach you that in seminary because they're teaching you from a Western Greek mindset. But the Hebrew sages, they understand that the Torah isn't chronological because they've dealt with these passages and they're like, there has to be a distinction between narrative, which is chronological, and commandments, which are achronological. I know I'm spending some time on this, but this is very, very big for people because Hebrews chapter 7 and 11 tells you that what? That the Levitical priesthood was given under the book of the law. It testifies to this chronology. It testifies to it. The Torah isn't written chronologically. The episode of the golden calf preceded the command to build the tabernacle. Even Rashi, and I'll only quote Rashi when it behooves me to quote Rashi, but even Rashi understood this in Shemot, Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. The tabernacle, this is huge for people, the tabernacle was never Yahweh's original intention. It was never Yahweh's original intention, but rather a requirement which resulted from the prosthesis. The tabernacle was the prosthesis. So why would you spend your life studying the prosthesis when you can have a regrown limb from the master physician and the Malkitzedic priesthood? Because you can make money selling bloody prosthesis. There's a shop right next door. I mean, sorry, call it what it is. I got nothing to lose and everything to gain. And I will fear no man. No, I'm not going to be afraid of the talking heads that are going to try and sell you all their propaganda and all their DVDs and all their books and all their... I really have to tame it down, but it's crazy because I see the sheep being fleeced and it drives me nuts because I used to be one of those sheep that was fleeced too. Oh, there's another conference. Oh, let's go and, you know, let's come to the Shabbat table and it's all cloaked up. And then they open it up and sell all their wares after Shabbat. They're all, wait, can't wait for it to, the, you know, Shabbat to be over because they can sell all their wares at the con. I mean, that's what it is. Let's go to another conference and see what we can buy. Oh, let's all blanket it up religiously, ritually on Shabbat. Oh, we're not going to go there. We're not going to buy on the Shabbat. Oh, as soon as that sun's down, they're whipping it up. Their transactions up. That's what it's all about. 
And you had to buy your ticket to go there in the first place, right? <laughs> My goodness, before Shabbat. It's some wild stuff, isn't it? Oh, praise Yahweh that, you know, we're released from that. We're released from that. My goodness, you don't have to be a part of that. You really don't. So we can see that the episode with the golden calf preceded the command to build the tabernacle. And even Rashi understood that in his commentary on Exodus 31 verse 18. The tabernacle was never Yahweh's, never Yahweh's intention, but it was a requirement. It was the prosthesis which resulted in the sin of the golden calf. Again, the order of the Parshas in the Torah is determined by thematic connections and not necessarily the sequence of events. Exodus 16, verse 33, and Exodus 25, case in point. Judah and Tamar, again, the gap of 13 years, case in point, that this was not chronological. We just have to slow these things down. By, we, by the time we get to Exodus 20, we know that Moshe is receiving instructions from Yahweh that get written down much later, much later. Or he gives a discourse to the people that is summarized briefly at the time, and then the details come much later. It's like the sprinkling procedures that are reflected in different accounts. If you look at Exodus chapter 24, verse 6, and then you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18, you'll get some teachers that will take issue with the book of Hebrews based upon this connection. And they say, it doesn't say that in Exodus chapter 24, verse 6, when you read Exodus 9, verse 18. But they're not realizing that the sprinkling procedures get written down in much detail later in the book of Leviticus. It's all about the sprinkling procedures, so they're not stated there in Exodus chapter 24, verse 6. The procedure used by Moshe when he came down from the mount in Exodus 24 is written down and described much later in the fifth verse of Leviticus chapter 14. Now we're slowing it down. So now when somebody comes and tries to rip out the book of Hebrews based upon Hebrews 9.18 and it not jiving with Exodus 24.6, you lead them to Leviticus chapter 14 verse 5 and give them a boot in the... Yes. Additionally, again, to conclude this section, it's important though because we're dealing with the Torah isn't chronological, please. Because that's the biggest stumbling block to revelation. It's the biggest stumbling block to revelation. Because you don't have to think if everything's laid out for you and spoon-fed to you, right? A, B, C, D. Genesis, Exodus, I mean, come on. I'm being facetious, but really, it is kind of like that. It does get like that. The golden altar of incense. Where is it in Exodus chapter 25? It's skipped in the sequence. It's skipped in the sequence, and it's written down later, five chapters later in Exodus 30. So this is telling us 
This is not linear storytelling. Like when we were at Sunday school. This is not linear storytelling. Like when I was at Calvary Chapel. And it doesn't fit in in the modern sense the way we like it to. But it is our chronological instead. The Torah isn't modern Western literature. It truly isn't. You have to fight to get the details together. You have to spend time to get the details to work together. And it won't all be found in some little convenient package for you. You have to fight to get the details to fit together. But that's the journey. There is nothing more rewarding when you're sitting down studying the Word and you're flipping, oh, and then you flip back, and then you flip. I mean, come on, isn't that the most amazing thing when everything starts, oh my goodness, look, it's here. Then you're back and then you're here. Thank goodness it's not all in John chapter 3, verse 16. Right? I praise Yahweh that you have to fight a bit because then you make it your own. It's personal revelation and enlightenment that then empowers you to go out and do what you need to do and fight for Yahweh. Another example is in Parsha Lech Lecha, where we have the death of Terach, Avraham's father. It's mentioned at the end of Parsha Noah, when in reality Terah was still alive when Avraham left the land of Canaan at age 75. Simple arithmetic will bear that out. You see? Another biblical literally, uh, literal, excuse me, another biblical literary technique that we'll find in the New Testament is called telescoping. And you see this a lot in the New Testament. It's a common Hebrew storytelling technique. Matthew does this, for example. Read his account of the calling and sending out of the apostles. It sounds like it all happened at once when you read the Gospel of Matthew. The calling and the sending out of the apostles. But it it didn't all happen at once. He telescopes, Matthew, he telescopes his writings and Moshe uses a chronological approach to the Torah which allows for the thematic considerations in the text Both writers, they don't just come and start spoon-feeding us the text. You've got to fight for it a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. At that time, now this is after the golden calf breach with the second set of tablets, chapter 10, verse 1, Yahweh set aside the tribe of Levi. Deuteronomy 10. Verse 8. At that time, what time? At that time, after the golden calf breach, Yahweh set aside the tribe of Levi. Now we can understand Hebrews chapter 7 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Exodus chapter 24, 12. Exodus chapter 32. Ah, it doesn't chronologically make sense. Now, we can approach it with... Biblical eyes, and we can see 
Hebrews chapter 7, 11, it makes textual sense. Thematically and mitzvot. Because you cannot add anything to a blood-ratified covenant. And that has been the hardest thing for people to grasp. And it's my fault. I take full responsibility because I assumed that people knew that, that the Torah wasn't chronological. I assumed that because I knew that. And that is why it took me some time to go, okay, I need to back up a little bit and explain this. Because I've spent that time in the Torah the past 10 years, it it becomes obvious when you read it each and every week and have to teach it each and every week. It's different. Because when you teach it, you, I always say to people, the best way to learn anything is to teach it. Because first of all, you've got to absorb all the information. Then you've got to try and make sense of all the information. And then you have to be able to communicate the information and hope that the people have a clue of what you're talking about. And by the time you've done that, you own it. You truly own it. And that, I apologize as being my problem, is I speed ahead and go, oh, yes, because I understand that. But that doesn't mean that we're all at the same pace. So I have to slow down too. So my apologies on that. But hopefully this gives some clarification and we can see things a lot clearer now. Exodus chapter 24, 12 is in fact the seventh mention of Moses ascending the mount. And Exodus 24, 12 is the start of the infamous 40 days and 40 nights, with the book of the covenant already have been blood ratified on the fifth ascent, decisively meaning that nothing can be added or taken away, Galatians 3, 15. The Exodus 24 statement includes Yahweh saying, Come up here and I will give you a law I have written. doesn't say anything about that you and I, that the people have agreed to, does it? It's not a covenant where they agreed to it. It's, I'm going to give you this. This is something that I'm going to impose upon you and strap on this prosthesis. Yahweh certainly cannot add to an already blood-ratified covenant. It's got to be a totally different contractual agreement beginning right here, Exodus 24, verse 12, and now Hebrews 7, 11. If perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. Yes, the book of the law was given under, the, under Levi. That's all-knowing Yahweh. Yahweh knew what they were going to do when Moses was up on the mountain. He is all-knowing, and he knew. In Hebrew thought, when does life begin? Conception. When does life begin? At conception. Not birth, conception. Exodus chapter 24, 12 is the conception point of the book of the law after the breaking of the covenant. That is key. It's the conception point. It's not the birth. It's the conception when it begins. Does that make sense? Very important that we understand that. 
that conception point brought the Levitical priesthood that the people had no idea about until Moshe came down the mountain. But by then they had already breached the covenant with the golden calf, Exodus 32, and they were now under a Levitical priesthood prosthesis. They were under a Levitical prosthesis because the bomb had gone off in the camp. The bomb had gone off in the camp. They were no longer a nation of Malchizedek priests. They were a nation with a Levitical priest, a Levitical high priest. It's a game changer. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. This is another thing that people get hung up on. And that there were more than 10 words given in 40 days. I mean, do, are we really to believe that Moses went up the mountain for 40 days with Yahweh and all he could get was 10 words? What's written on the tablets is the whole of the covenant, not limited to 10 words. The whole of the book of the covenant was written on the tablets. The whole of the covenant was written on the tablets. Deuteronomy 5 verse 22. These words, that would include Deuteronomy 5.1, Yahweh spoke unto your, all your assembly in the mount on the midst of the fire, of the cloud and of the thick darkness. And with a great voice, and he added more. The Hebrew word there is lo. Now many people and translators, I believe the King Jimmy does this, they will translate that he added no more. Do you see that in any of your Bibles? Does it say no more? But the Hebrew word there is low, and it can mean for a mention more. For a mention more. And he wrote them in two tables of stone and delivered them unto me. And it can also mean as for a truth. Now he added as for a truth more. He added more. Deuteronomy 5 verse 31. But as for thee, Moses, thou stand here by me, and I will speak unto thee all the words, commandments, and statutes, and judgments, which thou shalt teach them, and they may do them in the land which I will give them to possess. Now, if you couple that with Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 10, and Yahweh delivered unto me two tables of stone written with the finger of Yahweh, and on them was written according to what? All the words which Yahweh spoke with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of assembling. So we can now see that the tablets of stone, what we think commonly called the Ten Commandments, is actually all of the covenant code of commandments. Because the phrase Ten Commandments, it only actually appears in the Bible three times. And the word ten, this is really telling, it comes from the Hebrew word eser, which comes from the Hebrew word asar, and it's, it means, it can also mean to the extent of the digits or multiples of 10 up to 120,000. So it doesn't limit it to 10 words. 
It can mean multiples of the digits up to 120,000, meaning everything that's written in the Covenant Malkitzedic Code was written on the tablets of stone. Does that make sense? Now, the Hebrew, if you want to connect these Strong's numbers, you can look at the Hebrew word eser, is Strong's number 6235, coming from the Hebrew word asar, Strong's number 6237, and it's equal to Strong's number 6240. All three have the same Hebrew spelling, and it can mean in the extent of digits as multiples of 10, including six score thousand 124,000. And this is the strongest biblical proof that the entire book of the covenant was in fact written on those stone tablets. And that's why they would have been placed in the Ark of the Covenant. You see, they were all written, they were written on front and back, Exodus 32, verse 15. And Moses did have 40 days to do it, so he had plenty of time to hear and to write more than 10 words, up to 120,000 words. Because what we find is actually that Yahweh was doing the writing and it was the hard copy confirmation of the marriage covenant. It was that hard copy marriage certificate, the ketubah of the book of the covenant. And Moses either directly or heavily alluded to the all And they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, not the Ark of the Ten Commandments. And it wasn't the Ark of the Partial Covenant or the Ark of the Half Covenant. It was the Ark of the Covenant, just as we will find as we continue to read. Deuteronomy 10, verse 4. And he wrote on the tablets, according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments. We now know that this meaning can mean more than ten which Yahweh spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly, and Yahweh gave them unto me. Deuteronomy is only the witness or the retelling of this account. It's a covenant. A covenant has to be what? Blood ratified. If this were a covenant, where do we see that these commandments were blood ratified? If these Ten Commandments are some separate covenant, where were they blood ratified? They weren't, were they? So it can't be some separate covenant that some people try to shoehorn it all into. Many people will go to Exodus 24, verse 7 and 8 and try and say this. But then we have to look at verse 3, which is what the actual account of the events of the entire book of the covenant say. In Exodus 24, verse 3, read this. And Moshe came and told the the people all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words, not limited to the ten, all the words which Yahweh has said we will do. This is the first post-acceptance of the entire covenant. And it includes everything from Exodus 19.5 through 24.8. The second is in verse 7. 
that we can see this is from what? The blood-ratified book of the covenant. And that would include Exodus chapter 21, all the judgments and right rulings, Exodus 24 verse 3, all the words and all the judgments. All of that was included on those tablets. Again, we have to slow it down and start to look at things more Hebraically rather than that Greek linear thought. So those are some of the things that I wanted to address today that was stumbling blocks. But then I like to start off in an area where I began with the nuts being blown off. So why don't we deal with a little bit of flesh that would be removed and let's talk about circumcision because people ask me about that. Well, where do we stand with circumcision in the Malkitzedic priesthood? Very important question, I believe. Very important question. We're not going to be like Islam and mutilate ourselves at 13 years old. How many of you have been to Israel, to Jerusalem? And you see these like 13-year-old nutters walking around with white bedsheets on with blood on. Have you ever seen that? Because they do it because when, when did Ishmael, how old was Ishmael when he was circumcised? See, and you don't think this is a war against the seeds? Crazy stuff. Let's look at circumcision. Moshe and Yeshua are both what? Malkitzedic covenant mediators. And we know that Yahweh knows the end from the beginning. Yahweh attached physical circumcision, Genesis 17, to the Genesis 15 promise, guarantee. But once that covenant was broken, it would take the sign of the covenant out of the way. Think about it. Circumcision was the sign that was attached to the covenant. You would get circumcised as a sign that you were a part of the Malkitzedic covenant. So if the covenant was broken, would there be any purpose circumcising into a broken covenant? That's why you don't see the children of Israel circumcising for how many years? Forty years. Yet they're wearing tzitzit which are a witness that you're keeping the commandments. So they obviously knew something. They knew that if the covenant was broken, then there would be no point doing the covenant entrance sign of circumcision because you can't enter into a broken covenant. You simply can't. This is now huge because it's going to clear up all those New Testament scriptures about circumcision. Because the seal to the covenant was broken. The covenant was broken, which also took out the covenant sign of circumcision, which was a requirement to entrance into it. But you can't enter into a broken covenant. Let's look at the evidence. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 5, verse 5. Now, all the people that came out were circumcised, 
But all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, so this is Exodus 32, all the way to Joshua 5.5, they had not circumcised. Why? Because they knew that the covenant was broken. There's no point circumcising into an already broken covenant. The sign is a moot point. It's a moot point. So now in Joshua chapter 5, verse 5, circumcision is reintroduced, but is it, is it attached to the covenant? No, it's a land entrance sign. It's a land entrance token. It's got nothing to do with the broken covenant. Now we are really kicking against the, at this point, because now we're kicking against Judaism and Christianity's interpretation. Because Judaism today still circumcises and believe that they're circumcising into the covenant of Abraham. But that's a broken covenant of which that sign was attached to. Circumcision today is nothing more than a land entrance token. If you're going to circumcise today, realize it's a land entrance token or your pediatrician recommended it to you for various reasons. But it's got nothing to do with Abraham's Malchizedek covenant because you cannot circumcise into a broken covenant. That's why the children of Israel, there was apparently no problem. Moses never, never chastises them, does he? He doesn't see any discrepancy as about wearing seat seats that are a reminder to keep the commandments and not circumcising. Why? Because the covenant was broken. So think about it. Before the golden calf break of Exodus 13, prior to the 40-year wilderness lapse of Joshua's, Joshua 5.5, 5, physical circumcise was the premier covenant entrance sign. You weren't in the covenant unless you had the sign, right? That's why those that left Egypt, they were circumcised. Because they anticipated the fullness of that promise coming forth. And you knew that you weren't ever going to be in the covenant unless you had the sign. So this generation that left Egypt, yes, they were circumcised. But then they broke the covenant. They broke the seal that came 430 years later. And there would be no point. There was no point to circumcise. There was no undefiled covenant requiring circumcision to enter into. They had ruined it. Yahweh's Genesis 12 oath didn't require any human responsibility on our part, did it? So if Yeshua has come and he has now mediated a new covenant that allows us to attach, attach back to Genesis 12, is there anything that we can do that will allow us to enter into that covenant? Or is it purely out of our hands and it was purely in his hands? You see, that's the beauty of the Malkitzedic covenant. Yahweh's Genesis 12 oath didn't require any human responsibility on our part, including circumcision. And not by the covenant of Genesis 15, which is now broken. The Genesis 17 connection of the sign. 
And now we can see why. This whole group, they observed Passover. They wore seat seats for the next 40 years. And they had uncircumcised kids at Passover. Right? And there was Moshe never took issue with them once. How come? Because circumcision is a moot point when you've got a broken covenant There's no point having a sign to enter into a broken covenant. So they could sit down at Passover with uncircumcised children and wear tzitzit. And Moses, the mediator, takes no issue with them. This is amazing. We had priests that were uncircumcised. This is amazing. This is is the very, very reason why Paul's New Testament position on uncircumcision is correct. As we can see, as I've already stated, and as we can see by Genesis 12, Yahweh's oath to the uncircumcised Abram, Abram that required nothing, he had to do nothing. His descendants didn't have to do anything to be a part of that Genesis 12 oath, including circumcision. He didn't have to do that. Genesis 15 is the guarantee covenant guaranteeing the promise that was already made in Genesis 12. The Genesis 15 covenant, that did carry the death penalty position for sure. It required the fulfillment seal that came 430 years later, the book of the covenant, that Abraham's descendants accepted and agreed to. This was the seal. That book of the covenant made Israel a nation of Malchizedek priests. And they circumcised into that covenant because that was the token sign to the functioning covenant. But once the covenant was broken, the sign is of no effect. And that is what Paul is communicating to those in the New Testament. And it is so powerful They broke the covenant in less than 40 days. They defiled themselves and they were no longer eligible to be Malchizedek priests. In lieu of complete annihilation, Yahweh granted them to be a nation of what? Prosthesis Levitical priests was a prosthetic temple for them to be part of. Four hundred and thirty years later. That promise was given, and they broke it within 40 days. And you cannot break that promise that came 430 years later without breaking the promises itself and the signs that were connected to it. They are all part of the one. And that is what you can see played out at Yeshua's crucifixion when he paid the death penalty position of, X, of Genesis chapter 15. He then what? allows us to connect back to Genesis 12. And it is by the circumcision of men that we do it or by the circumcision of Messiah. This is amazing. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. But if thou be a breaker of the law, the book of the law, thy circumcision, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision 
1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments, well, that's everything. Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Yeshua neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but it's faith that attaches you to the covenant, is it not? Do you believe that Yeshua paid the death penalty position? Do you believe that he is the Malchizedek priest? And do you believe that you are a holy nation of priests today that connects back to the Genesis 12 covenant of promise and that you can't do anything to your member to get you in it? But if you go whoring out in the nations, you may get your nuts blown off. Just one more time, I had to say that. (laughs) Galatians 6.15, For in Yeshua neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. We're a new creature. Colossians 3.11, Neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. And Galatians 5.11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution. To circumcise or not to circumcise? What is the question? Just know that if you circumcise today, you are being obedient to the Joshua 5.5 command. It's a land entrance token. It has got nothing to do with the Genesis 15 because that is a broken covenant and you can't circumcise into a broken covenant. The only way you can get back to Genesis 12 is through the circumcision of Yeshua. So your circumcision or uncircumcision is nothing. It's put on the circumcision of Christ to use a very, very distinguished New Testament term. Wow, there is no... There is, there is no discrepancies between the words of Paul and the Malchizedek covenant. It is covenant Torah. Paul was not lawless as the church would have you believe. He was so in tune with everything Malchizedek and royal covenant Torah, but we just didn't have the ears to hear because his writings are hard to understand and men twist things to their own accord and lead people astray as they fleece the sheep with all of their Levitical hierarchy. Amazing stuff. But we truly need to be blessed, and we need to press in, and we do need to understand that there is things going on in this world that truly will take people standing up, standing up and joining the priesthood of Malchizedek, claiming the sword of Yeshua, the sword of the Spirit, to the nations. Because otherwise, you're not going to have the stomach to stand when all of the other religions of compromise will cripple and fall because they're all hobbling along on a prosthesis, man-made appendages. But we have got the master physician that can regrow limbs. And he's regrown my limb in my life because I blew everything off by the time I was 24, literally, literally. And he has regrown my limb, and that's why I stand up with such passion, because I've got nothing to lose, because when he found me, I was truly dead. So everything I have, he has given me. So I'm not going to cower at this late stage in the game. There's no way. 
and none of you should either. If you truly know where you, he who began in the spirit, let him continue in it. Questions, comments, anybody? a lot. And you said Adam was the first Melchizedek and Moses was the last Melchizedek, but yet Noah wasn't a Malky. So how are you using that phrase? You follow? Right. Well, I believe in the first teaching, Melchizedek number one, I go through the, um, the Melchizedek um, list or the Melchizedek order. And at the time of Noah, we can find out from the book of Yasha, which is mentioned three times in Scripture, that in fact um, we can find out that Shem was the Malkitzedic. Correct? So no, no, Noah's son was, um, was the Malkitzedic Shem. So before Noah, it's escaping me now. Can somebody help me out? Yeah, we're not talking about necessarily the order of the Malkitzedic. Oh, okay. It was just calling these people Malkisetics. It's just a phrase you're using of which they come under, an order of which they come under, because Noah wasn't a king, right? Well, no, the, the, that was a kingly realm. They were kings. They were kings. Okay. That's, yes, that's they were. The patriarchs, they were kings. This is, that's the whole purpose. They were kings. Abraham was a king. Yes, he was a king. He was the king, and, and, and that's what, when, the, when Malkitzedek came to him, that was the king of righteousness. And the war of the kings, yes. So we, we have to understand that the Torah context of things, especially back in Genesis, these were patriarchs and kings, and they had their clans, and they had their warriors, and they had their families. It was an extremely patriarchal kingly family. There were many different kings, but yes, they were kings. Yeah, so it is literal. Malki, they were kings and Zadik, righteous. Yes, sorry, I misunderstood. Anybody else question? Yes. That's from the veterans. From the Surgeon General. And that's just because our men are going in fighting with uh, Islam? Yeah, it's ba- basically um, all of these injuries are since 2011, either I- Iraq or Afghanistan or other Islamic nations, where these, you know, they're making all of these, they're, they're, they're expert bomb makers. They're expert bomb makers. I don't know if anyone saw the ISIS propaganda video put out last week. I mean, it was a very, very good production. Did anybody see the ISIS propaganda video that was put out last week on Times Square and TGI Fridays? Anybody see that? Well, you can type it in on YouTube. It's about 20 seconds long. But they put, they put out these propaganda videos. In fact, we might be able to boot it up. Um, but um, they're, they're going to be um, truly, truly doing, doing this in the nations. Yes. after the reproach of Ishmael and after the reproach he said I've rolled that you know he named the place Gilgal the two instances of circumcision happened after a time of disobedience with Abraham was disobedient with Ishmael obviously that was their own that God never commanded Sarah to give Hagar and a time of disobedience he said I've rolled the way of reproach of your fathers 
of that time. So I'm wondering if those, those instances of circumcision were prosthetics, to maybe to re-enter into a different... Well, exactly, because quite honestly, the Genesis 15 request that Abraham had, which the Genesis 17 covenant of circumcision is a sign of entrance into, is because Abraham lacked the faith and he requested a signatory guarantee. He said, Yahweh, how do I even know what you promised me in Genesis 12 I'm really going to be able to um, attain? You see, so he went back to Yahweh and he, in his flesh... He needed something extra, and Yahweh said, okay, if, you don't, if you're not going to take me at face value unconditionally on Genesis 12, then I'm going to give you an extension arm attachment of a conditional covenant with a death penalty position, and you're going to have a signed token entrance into that. So yes, you're totally right. Again, it's, it, it's, you're dealing with the flesh. Of course it's carnal. I think it might have some insight to that uh David being a Melchizedek, or David eating the showbread. Yes. Here, me and my wife were reading through Leviticus, and it was saying that if a man steals lechem or bread, it's not a crime. It's not a sin because it's going to his belly to feed him. So maybe it was the Leviticus verse was just, you know, showing that even though he stole the showbread, it's because him and his men were hungry. I'll have to read that. I'll have to read that. Where, what verse was that? It was in Leviticus. Oh, okay. Okay. Check that out. I'll talk to you after about that. Well, blessings. Um, we are um, truly blessed. So let, let's, um, let's bow our head in prayer. Anything else, brother, in the back? Next week. Next week, we are going to um, let you all choke on turkey and um, enjoy the savagery of the season. We won't be meeting here next weekend. We're going to have a break, and then we'll be back the following week, I believe. So, yes, blessings. Father, we thank you so much, Abba, for your Shabbat. We thank you, Abba, so much for your Kadosh word. And Abba, we, we love how your word is truly alive, Abba. It truly is alive and speaks to us in this generation. And Abba, we take heed and warning from your word, Abba, to be prepared and equipped as the Kedoshim, the saints of Israel. And we thank you, Abba, that you have ushered us into the priesthood of protection and of royalty through your son, the covenant mediator and the one that paid the death penalty position so that we could all have life. We bless you, Yahweh, and we thank you in Yahushua HaMashiach's mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.